I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The city of Zhengzhou sits on the Yellow River in the eastern Chinese province of Hunan. In 2010, Foxconn, which makes iPhones for Apple, moved in. The metropolis is now home to the world's largest iPhone factory, where hundreds of thousands of workers churn out tens of millions of handsets a year. And those workers are not happy. In October, following a COVID outbreak, Foxconn tried to seal the plant from the outside world. 200,000 workers had to live inside the manufacturing complex to curb the spread of disease. Some rioted, and some made a run for it. That has had a huge impact on output. Foxconn has reported sales for November down more than 11% from the previous year after shipments were affected by a COVID outbreak in central China. Last month's outbreak led to a worker exodus and violent protests at its factory in the city of Zhengzhou. What happened in Zhengzhou, or iPhone City as it's become known, is the story across China where economic growth is being held back by draconian COVID restrictions. But... After protests all across the country, policies are rapidly changing. This week, rules on regular COVID testing, mandated quarantine, and restrictions on travel around the country have all been relaxed. What does this mean for the Chinese economy and for the rest of the world? You're listening to Money Talks from The Economist, our weekly podcast on the markets, the economy, and the world of business. In Singapore, I'm Mike Bird. In London, I'm Samaya Keynes. In New York, I'm Alice Fulwood. And in today's show, what happens when China opens up? First, we'll consider the effects on the domestic economy. Ongoing COVID restrictions are probably subtracting 4 or 5% from Chinese GDP growth, so that's hundreds and hundreds of billions of dollars per year. Then, we'll hear what investors make of it all. Zero COVID by far is the single dominant factor driving the Chinese economy to the ground, if you wish. That really has caused mounting concern on the part of investors. Finally, we'll look at what dismantling zero COVID means for the global economy. Right now, if we had a really strong demand for energy from China, you know, it would send some pretty devastating ripples through the global energy markets. Hi, Alison Samaya. Hello. Hi, Mike. So have you guys been watching the unseasonably chilly World Cup? 
Not me, no, because I find football very boring. And actually, I may not be alone. I recently saw some spending data from Kantar, which is a kind of data company, and they were saying that there hasn't yet been a discernible effect on beer sales in supermarkets. So maybe my lack of interest is catching. Yeah, it's been funny watching bits of it in the US because the intensity of the sort of coverage and excitement about it has dropped off dramatically now that America has been uh, knocked out. I watched some uh, very fun games when I was in Japan, but most of them are at sort of three or four in the morning, my time now. So I, I have to get really into it before bothering to wake up. But in China, the national team didn't make it to the World Cup, but it has been having an effect on the country. The sight of unmasked fans from around the world in stadium stands in Qatar has been causing a bit of a stir. It's a notable sign to Chinese audiences that the rest of the world has moved on from the serious COVID restrictions that are still quite common in China. Yeah, I actually read that Chinese state TV had been trying to censor images of the unmasked football fans, though I guess quite a few got through anyway. Yeah, and I suspect you've also seen that has contributed to the growing unrest over the very restrictive policies that have affected production across China. To get a sense of just how disruptive those policies have been, I wanted to bring in Don Wineland, who's our China business and finance editor. Don, hello. Hi, Mike. So first, I think it's important to spell out that zero COVID really, really means zero COVID. How has that manifested itself in China? What's the situation been like up until the last few weeks? If you go back to last year, to 2021, they were really doing a very good job of keeping COVID out, really not tolerating any COVID cases. As soon as a case is detected anywhere, the People that have COVID are, you know, taken to quarantine facilities. Anyone who had any kind of contact with them are also taken to quarantine facilities. And in, in most cases, for quite a while, even the secondary contacts, so the contacts of the contacts of the people who have COVID were also taken to quarantine. It worked quite well in 2021. 2022 has been a different story. With Omicron, it's been very hard to contain. We've had several massive lockdowns this year in order to you know, rid the country of COVID. So yeah, that's kind of the reality of, of zero COVID. And how does the sort of force of the restrictions come through in the data when you look at the sort of economic numbers? The strongest impact on the economy has been on the demand side of the economy. So people going out and buying things, that's been the part of the economy that's been hit the hardest. Um, and, you know, it's very understandable. So another part of the reality of zero COVID is having to use QR codes to check in just about anywhere you go. And of course, you know, the threat of getting locked up, if you even come in contact with somebody who may have been in contact with somebody who has COVID, that really hurts economic activity. It discourages people from going to the movies, from traveling. Travel in China this year has been impacted very, very heavily. So that's one side of the, the impact in the economic figures. Of course, the, the supply side of the economy has been hurt as well, but not quite to the same extent. You know, industrial output has, has kept up. China's exports have kept up very well. One of the main things that, that have come through in the headlines has been the impact on some of these huge factories that are working for big companies that we know in the West, like Foxconn, which assembles 
the iPhones. And this, of course, is leading to a delay in orders for iPhone 14s. Uh, So there's also that impact on the economy. So bring us right up to the present day. Why are we talking about this now? What's the latest news on reopening? We're talking about this now because China is essentially opening up right now. On Wednesday, the central government announced another set of opening up plans. Essentially, they're reducing many of the restrictions that have been in place for well over a year. What they announced includes getting rid of requirements for showing proof of taking a test when you travel between provinces. This has been a, a really big problem for people that are you know, trying to do business around the country. They're scrapping that. I think the biggest announcement from Wednesday is that people with no symptoms or very mild symptoms can now quarantine at home. So as you know, they've been hauling people off to quarantine centers for uh, years now. A lot of people in China are more afraid of being taken to a quarantine center than catching COVID itself. So this is this is really big news. This type of measure will probably help bring down a lot of the pressure on the government to build new quarantine centers and to keep up this huge mass testing program they've been doing for such a long time. Don, thank you very much for leading us through that. Stick around because we're going to come back to you towards the end of the show. Absolutely. So we've heard how China's COVID measures have affected daily life in the country and the sort of strangling effects they've had on the economy. But let's now explore some of the effects of the restrictions being relaxed. Someone who's been giving this a lot of thought is Andrew Tilton, chief Asia-Pacific economist at Goldman Sachs. Andrew, great to have you with us. Thanks for having me. So in a nutshell, have the protests that we've seen over the last couple of weeks changed the calculus here? Or was most of this, do you think, sort of already baked in place before that started? They may have been a contributing factor, but there's clearly been a huge negative impact on the economy from the ongoing COVID restrictions. We estimate using our own framework that ongoing COVID restrictions are probably subtracting four or five percent from Chinese GDP growth. So that's hundreds and hundreds of billions of dollars per year. And so even without any uh, social concerns around it, the economic damage is very significant. So let's talk about the the short term first. Goldman Sachs research, based on the experience of Taiwan and Hong Kong, uh, both places that, that opened up relatively late into waves of Omicron when there was Uh, very few people in those places had had COVID. Their experience suggests that cases will ramp up very, very quickly on a reopening scenario. What would you expect that to mean for supply chains and short-term production in China? Will we see the sort of snarl-ups that we've become used to over the past couple of years? People do talk about a so-called exit wave, and you've seen that really every place that's been able to reopen from COVID. So we don't think China would be any different there. One thing we have observed is that the impact on supply chains, particularly manufacturing type operations, you really see that when restrictions or levels of COVID are very, very high at moderate levels of restriction, moderate levels of COVID. In particular, in China, China has been quite successful at keeping the supply side of the economy open under those conditions. We do tend to see, you know, in the initial quarter of reopening, consumption will decline. You know, People are staying home either because they're sick or they don't want to get sick. 
And so in that first few months of reopening, you actually see a negative impact on the economy. But we think that's more on the demand side, you know, consumption, you know, close contact services than on the supply side. So we think any disruptions to the supply side would be pretty short-lived if China does indeed you know, move towards reopening next year. And that short-term knock to the demand side of the Chinese economy, how large would you expect that to be? How long might that persist before you start to see the sort of positive effect on the economy of reopening? Well, in our forecast, we're assuming that China will keep you know, a reasonable level of COVID restrictions in place over the winter, given the risks for virus transmission in the winter and given the fact that the elderly population is not that well vaccinated yet. So we, in our forecast, have them opening in the second quarter. That quarter then is quite slow. You know, we, we have GDP growth suppressed by a few percentage points. That's at an annual rate. So call it you know, half a percentage point of GDP in cost to the economy in, in Q2 during that reopening. But then the economy likely to grow very fast in the two to three quarters thereafter. So there's a lot of sort of suppressed demand in your view. How do you go about disentangling the different things going on with the Chinese economy at the moment? Because we've had a sort of barrage of US-China relationships souring and the, and the sanctions there. You've had zero COVID. You've had the problems with the property sector. What sort of weighting do you give zero COVID when you think about these various factors maybe dragging on the growth of the Chinese economy at the moment? We'd put zero COVID first. Property is clearly a close second. And there is, as you mentioned, significant overlap between these various forces. So it can be a bit hard to disentangle. We feel relatively confident about our estimates of the zero COVID impact because we've studied this across many, many countries and over time. So we think that it's quite likely at a minimum, the impact is, is 3% of GDP and, and perhaps closer to 4 to 5% at present. In terms of property, we have the impact of the property downturn subtracting a bit more than two percentage points from GDP. There is some double counting there, but that gives you a perspective of the relative magnitude of those two factors. And we think it's also kind of a necessary condition to ease COVID policy in order for the property sector to recover. Hard to sell a lot of property if people are restricted in their homes or afraid to go out. Uh, so even if you think the property sector is a bigger overall factor, you still need to see zero COVID policy ease somewhat for that to improve. When we're looking sort of beyond zero COVID into, let's say, 2024, 2025, the, the end of when someone might be forecasting, how much do you see this having affected longer term growth? Where do you see Chinese growth post restriction recovering back to after all those the sort of burst effects of the suppressed demand are gone as well? We're expecting growth to settle in around 4%, and that would be a number that would be gradually going down thereafter, given demographic changes, ultimately a decline in population and a slowdown in the urbanization rate. Looking out 10, 15 years should take the potential growth rate down below 4%. As you mentioned, you know, during the reopening period, maybe in the first year, 18 months, we could see stronger growth than that. But that would be temporary, a reflection of getting back to normal in a lot of consumer and services sectors. But as many economists had had thought for some time that Chinese potential growth would, would slow, would decelerate given some of the demographic issues and the already very high levels of capital investment, it seems that in a way, you know, COVID, the pandemic period has been 
a factor transitioning us perhaps to that new state. Andrew, thank you very much for making the time to speak to us. Thank you. Happy to do it. That's an interesting element to all of this, whether even after zero COVID is gone, it might have started to accelerate the impact of other factors like the declining population, which will really decide the health of China's economy in the longer term. After the break, we'll hear from one of China's best-known investors on how he expects the zero COVID policy to be lifted and what will happen as that goes forth. But first, we want to hear from you. We're always thinking of ways to improve, and to do that, we would like to know more about our listeners. That's you. Please help us by filling out a short questionnaire. You can find it at economist.com forward slash money talks survey. And if you're not already a subscriber to The Economist, it is a great time to take out a subscription. It will give you access to our colleagues' excellent reporting on the AI boom, China's reopening, of course, and the new rules of investing that we discussed with Josh Roberts last week. Listeners can get a great introductory offer at economist.com slash podcast offer. Those links are in the notes for this episode. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. So we've heard about the effect of loosening COVID restrictions on China's economy, but I wanted to find out a little bit more about how investors are reacting to the potential reopening. So I spoke to Fred Hu, founder and chairman of Primavera Capital Group, a private investment firm based in China. Fred, great to have you with us. Great to be with you. So listed markets in China have had a pretty awful run recently. Some indexes of Hong Kong listed Chinese stocks are back to where they were in sort of 2005, six. How do you split that up when you think about it? Because you have this range of factors. You have the US-China relationship souring. You have the policy towards the tech sector, the property market, global interest rates. But how much of that can be attributed to, to sort of zero COVID and, and the policies around zero COVID? financial markets have been depressed by a multitude of factors. But it's clear to me, zero COVID by far is the single dominant factor here. You know, it's been really driving the Chinese economy to the ground, if you wish. That really has caused um, mounting concern on the part of investors to see, you know, the... Uh, sharp slowdown of the Chinese economy, companies' earnings, you know, have been dragged down. Consumer sentiments have been very fragile. So all this, I would say, is really attributable to uh, zero COVID. In fact, um, if I may, I would say 75% what's going on 
It's all about zero COVID. So yes, the outlook of markets very much hinge on when it awaited and when the China will reopen, will exit the current uh, zero COVID conundrum. And what is your view with how things are progressing on that front at the moment? Where do you think China is in terms of a reopening strategy? What do you see playing out here? Well, it's still early days. We yet to see a coherent national plan to reopen the country. So what we see is different uh, localities, you know, municipalities and provinces, you know, taking different uh, measures. So I find extremely uh, encouraging now that the central government, now they are prioritize COVID management strategy towards ramping up vaccination, particularly for the elderly uh, population, which as we know, is the most vulnerable. And then also beefing up emergency care, like ICU capacity and capability. You know, I am hopeful, or to be specific, you know, I expect by end of Q1, China will have exited from zero COVID as we know it. How do you interpret the news here as it sort of trickles out? Because we've seen for sort of for months now, you've seen uh, lots of rumor generation, some of which turns out to be true, some of which is denied and turns out to have been completely confected. You see stocks or, or even the currency slump and rise in reaction to these things. Is this something you fade and ignore or do you have to pay a lot of attention to it? I pretty much ignore that. Reopening is inherently messy. So China is not an exception. So, you know, it's inevitable. There'll be uh, confusing, you know, news uh, piece by piece out of the country. All this being exacerbated by China is not the best in terms of transparency and the public communications. So I would pretty much ignore all the short-term noises, but I do take strong comfort in that Chinese leadership at a very top level has you know, concluded it's time for China to move away from the very stringent zero COVID measures because they you know, have come to see the cost-benefit analysis no longer makes sense. Looking beyond reopening, so imagine in a year, two years, reopening's been done, all the sort of lagging effects have been finished, any sort of catch-up demand or anything like that. There's been sort of dispute over the extent to which the longer-term forces around things like demographics uh, might have been accelerated by this period of, of zero COVID in China, whether you'll have a sort of lower, steady growth rate going forward. Where do you see longer-term opportunities in China lying from an investment perspective? I'm still optimistic about the number of highly favorable structural trends that um, will drive Chinese economic growth. First of all, China has the world's largest middle-class base. Post-COVID, they're going to really uh, you know, spend on goods and the services, and also healthcare, education, you know, domestic and international travel. So they are become really engine 
uh, economic growth, but also a huge contributor to global economic growth, number one. Number two, you know, China has already built a highly efficient, competitive manufacturing base, now being the world's biggest manufacturing power. And we see many positive momentum to move up value-added chain. Instead of just being low-cost manufacturing, China become more technology-driven, innovation-driven economy. So that there's a significant potential for productivity growth despite the demographic headwinds. And finally, China is already a global leader in energy transition in terms of renewable energy, electrical vehicles, batteries, you know, hydrogen. So all in all, I'm uh, quite optimistic by the mid-long-term structural trends with a caveat, just, uh, you know, obviously China needs to really continue the path of free market reform and uh, further open up to the uh, international uh, economy. For the most part, if you're a Western investor, you haven't been able to get into China in a couple of years now. The sort of business relationships have been a little bit more difficult to maintain through this period. Once reopening starts to proceed, do you expect that sort of foreign investment demand to come booming back after the reopening is properly underway? Absolutely. You know, zero COVID, as I mentioned earlier, is the single dominant factor, you know, in depression investor sentiments, including foreign investor sentiments, among uh, others. So as China relatively quickly uh, exited zero COVID, you know, I said, you know, it's a matter of month, not another year, okay? If China can emerge out of the uh, uh, zero COVID and then with accompanying fairly significant economic recovery, you know, I do expect foreign investor confidence will also uh, improve. I do expect, you know, foreign investors will continue to not only stay in China or maybe ramping up the operations in China, just because this double attraction being still the most efficient manufacturing economy, but at the same time become increasingly important source of demand worldwide. But, you know, again, just particularly on earlier exit from zero COVID and also, you know, trying to make sure more liquid, more level playing field for multinationals up in China. There's some homework to do, but I'm hopeful China will do precisely that in the coming years. Fred, thank you very much for making the time to speak with us. You're most welcome. I'm back now with Don Wineland, The Economist's China business and finance editor. Don, thank you very much for sticking around. So what did you make of everything that you heard there? And what do you think in terms of the sort of progress, the sequencing, the pace of reopening that appears to now be coming through the pipeline? I agree with a lot of the points that they make. In terms of the pace of reopening right now, I would say they're moving forward much quicker than most people anticipated. So we're seeing a lot of announcements from the central government essentially telling the local governments to loosen up on these restrictions. Now, what that means a month from now or two months from now, it's very, very hard to say. 
I think one problem with zero COVID over the past two years has been getting local governments around the country to come up with restrictions that mirror one another or are at least not that complicated when you move from one place to another. I predict that there will be a lot of confusion between different places in China over the next couple months. You might have cities that don't want to see high rates of infection. So they might implement their own version of, you know, zero COVID or zero COVID light or something like that to really keep infections down. Other places, you know, more developed cities with uh, good medical systems, they might be much more liberal in terms of implementing these things. But I do expect a lot of confusion and mixed signals for the next couple months. So we've spoken a lot about what the reopening will look like for China, but how is this going to ripple through the global economy? Where will we most keenly see the effects of reopening outside of China? It's a question that a lot of people are asking right now. And I think one thing we need to consider is the stages that China will reopen in. So the the first stage, of course, is a massive outbreak that will disrupt supply chains and domestic demand. So just think about, you know, entire factory towns that are suffering from, you know, widespread COVID cases. I think it most definitely will have a big impact on the operation of factories. But it should also be relatively short-lived. You know, factory workers in China are usually quite young. That type of disruption at individual factories shouldn't last that long. So, and you know, they also have a um, closed loop system that they like to use. Basically, it's a way of keeping people kind of away from each other as they work on production lines. You know, they can also put those into place. Now, once we get past the initial outbreak and, you know, China comes back online, yeah, there, I think there will be a surge in demand for certain things. So, energy is one thing, airplane traffic is quite low right now. I would expect to see a strong demand from people in China wanting to get out and travel for the first time in a couple of years. And the thing that needs to be considered here is where the rest of the world is at at this time. So obviously, right now, if we had a really strong demand for energy from China, you know, it would send some pretty devastating ripples through the global energy markets. Now, what happens eight months from now, or even in 2024? At that point, the US and, and Europe could be suffering from a recession. So it really depends on kind of where the rest of the world is at when China comes back. Don, thank you very much for joining us on Money Talks again. Um, I hope you'll be back soon. Thanks, Mike. So Alice, Samea, are you bracing for China's reopening? Yeah, it's interesting because in some ways the sort of territory is kind of familiar, right? So China is about to go through what the rest of the world has already gone through. So they're opening up sort of initially causing COVID outbreaks and and fear and therefore, you know, not necessarily helping the economy to begin with. And then eventually sort of they'll get to a place where things are back to normal. But they're doing it on a sort of much, much grander scale, partly because they're just a much bigger country. And in part because their zero COVID policies were so effective and they haven't necessarily vaccinated that many people. So that sort of initial fear and outbreak phase might be, you know, really quite intense. Um, I am excited for the Chinese version of the revenge summer, though, you know, them all heading out to bars, spending all their saved cash and sort of how big and and impactful that, that phase is for China. Yeah, I think for me here in Europe, the thing I'm 
bracing for most is the potential effect of, of all this extra Chinese demand on international energy markets. Obviously, more travel means more jet fuel and petrol consumption, more industrial output means more coal consumption. It's been very striking that depressed energy demand from China has been this unexpected boon in some ways for countries struggling with the disruption to their energy supplies caused by Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Now, obviously, you have this offsetting effect, which is that you know strong growth in the Chinese economy means extra demand for other imports. You know, German exporters um, might might welcome some of that. But looking specifically, the energy markets, um, that does seem to be driving a lot of the economic pain in Europe. That's what I'm waiting for. I think what's going to be really interesting to me, and I was, it was really interesting to hear Fred put a figure on it, his 75% of, of China's sort of current economic malaise or something like that is zero COVID. If that's true, you'd expect a pretty rapid recovery and a lot of these problems to resolve themselves relatively quickly. You know, you might have a bumpy half a year or so, but that we'll be looking at a year's time and a much, much better, uh, not only economic circumstance then, but a much better outlook as well. But it's possible also on the other side of things that this has caused a long term hit to China's growth prospects. And I think beyond that, this whole situation says something really interesting and revealing about the way that China is governed, that we've sort of gotten to this point. I think sometimes people make the mistake of thinking that lacking elections and broad freedom of speech, the Chinese government is sort of better able to make these grand strategic decisions. Zero COVID is very much a point against that, where we've seen the political apparatus really stumble. And that's going to be really important to a lot of things, not least the resolution of the property crisis that's bubbling away in China as well. Yeah, I mean, 100% agree with all of that. It was It's so weird now to remember all of the kind of gloating uh, that came out of China when it looked like they were really the only place that had this COVID thing sorted. Now, how things have changed. Should we now pivot to our stats of the week? Yes, we should. Uh, I'll go first this week. My stat of the week is 70%, which is the shares in the S&P 500 that have outperformed the index, uh, at least year to date. So this is the sort of flip side of the big tech crash, is that the the vast majority of shares have actually outperformed the S&P 500. So the, the joke is often that, you know, if you got a monkey to throw darts at a dartboard, uh, it would do about as well as active managers in terms of stock picking. But this year, it should have been relatively easy to pick stocks uh, that have done better than the S&P 500, because most of them have. Great. Maybe we should set up shop as the not tech um, investment advice bureau or something. Um My stat of the week is 24%, which is the share of businesses in Britain saying that they couldn't operate fully because of industrial action in October. So this is the summer of discontent turning into the winter of discontent, real income shock, public sector pay, not not keeping pace with inflation. People are very unhappy. And one would expect that figure, that measure of disruption to rise this month in December. Um, There are more rail strikes planned, more postal disputes, lots of health workers threatening to strike. My standard miserable stat of the week. All of this is extremely miserable for me uh, coming back to the UK for Christmas. I am uh, constantly looking 
with some level of desperation at whether there are rail strikes that will prevent me getting from the airport either to London or to home. My statistic of the week in the old money talk style is is extremely miserable. It's South Korea's exports in November to China, which were down at 25.5% year on year. That is the worst figure since 2009 during the aftermath of the global financial crisis. This is all because of, in large part, what we've been talking about in this episode, the slowdown in the Chinese economy. But it's also because of the slowdown in semiconductor sales globally, particularly uh, the sort of memory chips that South Korea makes. Um, PC sales, rubbish everywhere. Electronic sales, generally pretty bad. It's really bad news, the sort of Asian industrial complex. Um, yeah, I thought since we'd, we'd had Alice have a sort of semi-positive stat uh, with, with something vaguely good for somebody in it, I, I thought I'd just share something that was was utterly miserable for everyone. Thanks, Mike. Us two misery guts will keep the, the flame burning strong. Our thanks this week go to Andrew Tilton and Fred Hu. And thank you for listening to Money Talks. Don't forget to rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. And you can always write to us at podcasts at economist.com. Today's show was produced by Dan Asher and Marie Keyworth. Our sound engineer is Nico Ralfast. Our executive producers were Hannah Marino and John Shields. I'm Mike Bird. I'm Alice Fulwood. I'm Samaya Keynes. And this is The Economist. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.